Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. This is my fourth security-focused episode, and after the success of discussing the threats in software supply chain and how well it was received by our community, today we'll be discussing the changes to software supply chain regulations, and I'm joined by Charlie Jones, Mark Goodwin, Sean Wright, and Simon Bennett. Before we delve deep into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Charlie, do you want to kick us off? My name is uh, Charlie Jones. I'm a director of product management at uh, Reversing Labs. I'm specifically responsible for overseeing our software supply chain security product. And previous to Reversing Labs, I led the uh, supply chain security proposition for PwC in the UK. Perfect. Mark? Hello, uh, I'm Mark Goodwin. I look after application security at Matillion, uh, which is a company that produces data productivity cloud. And Obviously, the software supply chain is a large part of the work that I do, ensuring that the software we build is composed of, of good things. Perfect, Sean. Thanks for having me. Um, great to be here. Um, so I'm Sean Rudd. I am Principal Application Security Engineer at a company called FeatureSpace. Um, we develop machine learning software for um, aiding in preventing financial fraud and anti-money laundering. Our products, obviously, are very important that we have security involved in it. So uh, supply chain is very much part of that. And I've been involved in supply chain even before my current roles. Interest in that. So, Amazing. Thank and Simon? Thank you. Hi, folks. Uh, my name is Simon Bennett. I'm the founder and project, one of the project leaders of the Z-Attack proxy, otherwise known as ZAP. Uh, which is free and open source and probably the world's most popular web scanner. And now, a word from our sponsor, Qualys. But who are Qualys? Qualys is recognized as an industry pioneer and a premium provider of cutting-edge cloud-based security compliance and IT solutions, backed by a global subscriber base exceeding 10,000 customers. Qualys is incredibly proud to be supporting Evolution Podcasts, Together, we are dedicated to addressing the prevalent challenges in the ever-changing landscape of cybersecurity. Qualys assists organizations in consolidating and automating their security and compliance solutions onto a unified platform, resulting in enhanced agility, improved business outcomes, and a significant cost reduction. Utilizing a single agent, the Qualys Cloud Platform delivers continuous critical security intelligence and remediation with comprehensive coverage extending across on-premise, endpoints, servers, public and private cloud, containers, and mobile devices, ensuring robust security across a diverse environment. For more information, please visit Qualys.com and see for yourself how Qualys can help your business manage and reduce your cyber risk at speed, at scale, and in a quantifiable way. Great introduction. Perfect. So in our discussion, uh, we'll cover topics such as stakeholder responsibility, uh, the impact of upcoming regulations on software development, practical strategies for enhanced security and potential concerns and unintended consequences. With that, I suppose we'll start with establishing accountability in securing the software supply chain. So, Charlie, I'll come to you first with your question. Awesome. Uh, a bit of preamble first. Uh, there's obviously a number of stakeholders that kind of play part in the what I'll call the broader software supply chain ecosystem. And I think when we focus in on those uh, stakeholders that are actually bound by a lot of these 
requirements we'll be talking about today, you can almost begin to narrow the playing field a bit. So getting rid of people like open source maintainers who have no regulatory obligations to meet. So for simplicity purposes, I like it to boil it down to two main stakeholder groups, uh, enterprise publishers of software, so developers and producers of software, uh, and then consumers of software. So companies who acquire commercial off-the-shelf software to operate some part of their business. So my question for the group is what stakeholder group do you believe is ultimately responsible for uh, ensuring uh, software supply chain security? Do you think it's the publisher of software? Do you think it's the enterprise consumer or maybe even both? Sean, I'll come to you. Very good question. Um, so I think it's both. Um, it's also going to very much be determined um, who the publishers of that software. So if you're talking commercial software, you're paying for a product, right? So the emphasis should really be on the producer. You're paying for money and you deserve a um, fair and secure product in, in return. It's a bit of a different story when you, you're talking about open source because often or probably almost always you're not paying for that. So, and you're gaining free uh, kind of features in that for, for no cost. So I think there's also a potential um, argument to be made that you should be giving back to that, that project in some sense as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's very much dependent on the product and the, the way, as I mentioned, commercial or open source. Simon? I, would, I have to agree, Michonne. Um, so I definitely think it's a shared responsibility, and I completely agree about um, uh, contributing back to open source, not surprisingly, as an open source developer. Um, but I think uh, I disagree with Charlie about counting out open source projects as not being responsible. I think producers of software, whether they have some responsibilities, hopefully they're not going to be regulatory um, for open source point of view. Um, but something like um, look at software bill of materials, SBOMs. Um, so these are things that probably aren't that useful to, for producers, but producers can see how useful they are. So in Zap, the last version of Zap, we actually include SBOMs um, as standard um, for the core. And for every time we do a release, we automate that and you'll get SBOMs for every add-on. Um, we don't really benefit, but we can see how our customers will be benefit from that. Um, so I think responsible producers, both um, open source and commercial, should be providing these kind of things. But there's a responsibility on the consumers as well, because you've got, you know, one, choosing products that are suitably secure, but also making the right use of these things. And imagine you've got another, the next log for shell type vulnerability. You go, OK, we've had a all hell's broken loose. Where are we using this? That's OK, we've got the S-bombs. Right, where are they? Oh, I don't know. Um, probably with the products. Uh, where are they? And then all of a sudden you're searching around for these software bill of materials um, where, you know, if you're doing it responsibly and have them in a way you can query them very quickly, then you can actually make use of this. So the producers producing the useful information doesn't help if the consumers don't use it. And then I think legislatures do have responsibility for forcing change where it is not commercially viable or for whatever reason for the industry to move. Um, and as we've seen with SBOMs as well, you know, force it kind of forcing people who want to um, sell to the government to, to produce these things. I think that that's important too. So we have, yeah, shared responsibility across the industry really. 
Perfect. A lot of nodding going on there. Um, Mark? Um, I'm going to break the mold and agree with everybody. Um, so I think that uh, Sean made a really good point that um, if you're using a free and open source product, you know, clearly um, the person that's put the work into the product that you're using, the library you're using, um, shouldn't be ultimately accountable for the security of the thing you're using and how you're using it. Um, but that's not to say they're not responsible in some way. And this sort of feeds into Simon's point about how developers have a responsibility, even if they're not sort of accountable in the statutory or regulatory sense. And I think that um, broadening the, the, the answer slightly, and Charlie, I suppose, hinted at this in his introduction, um, kind of both, kind of everybody's responsible in that everyone bears some responsibility for ensuring their part of the, the security of the supply chain. Only the developers and producers can influence the security of the software as it's written and initially deployed. Only the uh, publishers can uh, determine exactly what is published and provide information on, on what updates are available and needed for that. Only customers and users are best placed to identify what they're using and how the security properties of that thing affects them. And so they all have some kind of responsibility. I think accountability, however, is a different question. And for me, an interesting way of looking at this is um, comparing it to other kinds of risk management. How are you managing that risk as a customer? Have you chosen to transfer it? In which case, you'd better make sure that the person you transferred that to, be it a publisher or whatever, is in the right place, in the right position to be able to assure the security of that thing. Um, but still, there's always going to be some responsibility, some accountability on the customer, because how you're using it and having the right processes around this ultimately is going to be the thing that makes the biggest difference. And um, give you an example, um, there's a CV I looked at recently because um, uh, a bit of software I was using um, had, it, had it mentioned. And uh, it turned out that the developers of the library that was deemed to be vulnerable didn't consider it a vulnerability because the documentation explicitly told them not to do that thing, right? In that case, it's not the software developer's responsibility. It's not the producer's responsibility. It's down to the person that's using that thing to make sure they use it properly. Uh, and I think that sort of underscores this idea of, of accountability quite well. Amazing. And Charlie, I'll come back to you to summarize. Uh, yeah, it's funny. This is one of the reasons I pose this question. It's It tends to be quite controversial. And when I pose it to a number of kind of subject matter experts in the industry, like everyone on this panel, you always come up with the same conclusion is that you can argue it both ways. But one of the things that I found is interesting. It's, it's not really controversial only amongst industry, but you also see this divergence of opinion at the regulatory level as well. So I'll give you an example of this. If you compare the scope of the Cyber Resilience Act, which was published by the EU Commission, and DORA, the Digital Operational Resilience Act, which was published by uh, European supervisory authorities for financial service sector. If you compare them side by side, it's quite interesting because even they have very different tones regarding ownership and accountability uh, in regards to managing this risk. So Cyber Resilience Act states that cybersecurity capabilities of digital products are the sole responsibility of what they call the manufacturer or distributor, essentially the publisher. And it goes to the extent where there are surveillance authorities that can essentially recall your products from the market if they don't think that you're meeting certain um, mitigation levels of, of risk, um, which has a direct kind of financial reputational impact on the publisher. Dora, on the other hand, takes a very different view. So it says that 
uh, software supply chain security is the sole kind of responsibility of financial entities to protect, detect, and recover from any kind of disruption or threat, regardless of, of where it comes from. And I think that distinction is really important because it takes the view that regardless of whether you kind of strategically decide to keep something in-house or outsource it to a third-party vendor, like a software vendor, you, the financial entity, are responsible for ensuring it's secure. So in summary, I think it's reasonable to say, like everyone else, uh, the responsibility falls to both the publisher and the consumer. And and not only is that supported through kind of industry opinion, but regulatory mandates as well. Perfect. A lot of nodding. We all seem to be in agreement. Um, I think the next question follows naturally from the first one. Obviously, we've established some sort of accountability for the supply chain. Um, it's important to think of the broader implications of regulations and how they might shape the industry going forward. With that being said, um, I'll come to you, Sean. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so my question is, how do you see the evolution of software development change um, with regard to upcoming and future software supply chain regulations? Simon, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, well, future supply chain uh, regulations, who knows? Um, it all depends on what those are going to be. Uh, I think change happens when things are either cheap and easy or a legal requirement. So going back to the SBOM example again, um, that can be automated. And there are really great free tools out there which can automate these things. So that one's a fairly easy win for a lot of people. So I think um, certain things that we see more automation, generating of security artifacts, uh, those kind of things will happen. Um, it's where things um, become much more expensive. Uh, that's when things get tricky. Um, so I think, you know, if legislation forces companies to limit their choice of components because only big companies can actually produce things um, which conform to all the rules, then that will be a really bad thing uh, and it will mean that you know it will force out smaller companies it will force out open source will get massive you know massive changes to the industry and things will get much much more expensive um so it's at the moment i think it's too early to say um but i definitely think there'll be a lot more automation where possible um but there will be yeah if bad rules get forced through then things will start going very badly wrong Mark? Yeah, so I think it depends. And as Simon uh, said, it really depends what the future regulations look like. And of course, the um, elephant in the room at the moment is how's the CRA going to land and exactly what's going to be in it? And what does that mean for um, open source developers? Um, I also agree with Simon's point on um, how uh, cheap and easy and legal requirements are two levers you can pull in getting something to, to, to happen. The latter becomes more important the less cheap and easy something is and um i think even when that's the case regulations and legal requirements don't change behavior or practice directly what they do is they change the incentives uh the economics and the risk calculus around what you do and the behavior and the practice follow and so with that in mind um i think it's probably the case that even if it doesn't change how people contribute to uh, various projects that make up our software supply chain, how those things are selected and promoted by people that publish for profit will change because the risk calculus changes. 
So, for example, um, in the past, something only had to exist and be convenient to see adoption. We might see a shift towards it needs to uh, exist uh, and be reasonably safe, according to some metric, for it to be considered. So, for example, you might see fewer people using something like OpenSSL um, in favour of things that are perhaps more memory safe and more modern in their design. Um, yeah, so I don't think anything's going to change immediately. I think over time, the presence of additional levers pushing people into a particular direction will have an effect, but it will be secondary to behaviours that change as incentives and economics change. Fine. Charlie? Uh, I'll start mine uh, with a bit of a disclaimer. My personal background in software development is probably very limited compared to some of you on this on this panel on this podcast. Um, my focus is like you'll see throughout the podcast, uh, mostly from the third party risk world. So I'll leave this more up to the experts to discuss. But generally, I think that uh, regulation is always going to kind of lag the reality of the development landscape. Things like SBOMs, vulnerabilities, we've talked about them already. They're, they're not new. They've been around for years, since the beginning of time. Um, however, I don't think it's been until recently that they've actually been impeding developers or publishers from actually breaking a build or stopping a release. Um, and as we see these kind of requirements being enforced by regulatory agencies, and as a result, the downstream customers that are forcing them through contracts on their vendors, I think developers are going to have to find a ways to be more transparent with sharing SBOMs, with sharing vulnerabilities that, and other threats even um, that they're finding uh, when they actually publish their software alongside it, um, which will be an issue because traditionally, even if sometimes developers find stuff, they still ship it. Um, we had a really interesting uh, research study that our team conducted um, just last year where they were... Uh, they surveyed a bunch of IT and security professionals, and they found that over half of all publishers uh, were knowingly shipping software with issues in it. So I think that this kind of need for transparency will call, will require them to take security a little more seriously because it's going to be, in my opinion, much harder to justify shipping software with known issues when you have to actually demonstrate you knew about those issues ahead of time. Just wanted to um, jump in there to to, to highlight a, a thing that Chris is sorry that Charlie said around how um, people ship with problems that they know about. I, I think the point I want to make is that um, what constitutes an issue and what constitutes exploitable has a huge amount of subjectivity to it, and there are a lot of perverse incentives in the way that we handle some of these issues in the industry that result in a whole load of confusion here. Um, I think that usually when we're talking about security, we're only willing to discuss the um, applicability of a particular course of action when we take risk into account. And I don't think the presence or lack of um, an identifiable issue necessarily is the benchmark for whether action should be required. Um, and I think, you know, coming back to the sort of the wider topic around upcoming regulations, one of the other issues that people have and with both sets actually is poor definition around those concepts. What is an issue? What does exploitability mean? 
And, you know, what does that mean for um, the burden on producers and authors of software systems? So I think I think it's worth being careful about that. I was just going to add to that. I think actually Mark made a very good point. Going back to to maybe correct or add to something I was saying, I think there's always going to be issues, right? Um, and like to Mark's point, exploitabilities or exploitability status of those issues is likely a much more important measuring stick on the risk that it presents to, to downstream consumers of that software. And there's actually some really good um, mechanisms now, like I don't know if everyone's familiar with VEX, the Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange. Uh, it's a working group that I'm involved in that's kind of led by CISA, but it's essentially a mechanism that allows publishers to communicate with downstream suppliers that are consumers that, yes, I know there's a vulnerability that's popping up in my um, in my application through an SBOM or it's associated with a component within my SBOM, but it's not a, exploitable for X reason. Maybe it doesn't sit in the execution path of the application. Um, so I think there's mechanisms that it's allowing uh, maybe more transparent discussions between publisher and consumer, but they're going to have to leverage those. Um, so they're not shipping code with these known issues in them without any justification for why they're being shipped. Right, and Sean, uh, I'll come back to you to try and summarize. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, some very good points raised. Um, I'd certainly agree with Simon. Automation, automation. We we have to start. We have to automate. Like uh, security teams are uh, often under resourced. A lot going on. Automation is the only way we're going to solve this. And it's not like supply chain is going to become less and less. It's just going to grow. Um, I think one thing that we should all consider and. I think it's just ha because it's happened and evolved, we're not always as aware as we should be. Software is now just a glue of these different libraries and frameworks. No one's going to go build something from the ground up anymore. Um, so companies need to realize this. Like third-party software libraries, frameworks, services are very much a part and parcel of modern software development. Um, so it's really important that we guard against those. It's not like in the past where you built everything in-house. Um, and then to the points like Mark raised um, about the what is an issue, how do we fix it? We can't tackle everything. If you go look at some of the vulnerabilities in, say, like Spring, if you're going to go try to solve every one of them, you'll just be chasing your tail. It's a lost cause, in my view. Um, you need to go tackle the things that make the the difference and then focus your efforts on other areas that will make a bigger difference as well. Um, and Charlie raised really, really good things about the, the regulations as well. So we saw with like the, the US government starting to bring that in. I think it's if you need to do any work with the, the US government departments, you now have to start considering supply chain and that. So I think we'll see more and more customers start questioning these things. I've certainly seen it myself. More and more customers start questioning these things, doing their due diligence on this. So it's very much part and parcel of modern software development today. Perfect. I suppose this next question shifts from the theoretical considerations to <laughs> practical strategies for improving security. So with that being said, Simon, I'll come to you. Thank you. So my question is, how can companies implement changes which will make them more secure rather than just tick regulatory boxes? Mark? Thank you. So uh, it's always about the why, isn't it? Um, how can companies implement changes that make them more secure? Well, if you have to tick regulatory boxes, 
make sure that the people in charge of ticking the regulatory boxes understand why it is that they're doing it. Um, none of the regulatory things that exist, none of the um, industry standards that exist, exist for people's entertainment. There's nearly always a reason why the standard or the specific requirement in it exists. And getting to the reason behind it, getting to the intent of the requirement, nearly always helps you find the more secure rather than just checking the box. Um, Simon mentioned in in one of the earlier answers about how if something's cheap or easy or um, if there's um, a law or some other regulation behind something, that's a really good way of affecting change. And I think that that simple truth is also one of the greatest tools we have as technical security people in affecting change in our organizations as well. You know, look at the impact that something like the introduction of PCI DSS-4 has on the adoption of um, really good but quite complicated security technologies for web front end like SRI and CSP. And you'll see that, you know, despite existing for most of a decade, those things didn't see brilliant adoption until um, there was something with teeth suggesting the use of them. And we can find similar things through changes to regulation as well. If there are boxes to be ticked, we've got an opportunity to explain to uh, the other stakeholders in the businesses we work in why the boxes exist and how we can make compliance with those requirements about a meaningful step change in the security of what we build rather than just a compliance exercise. Thank you, Mark. Charlie? Um, I think one of the initial reactions we always see to emerging regulations, which I actually think is is very sensible and, and natural, um, but is it, do I have any existing processes or tools uh, that we can simply just extend to meet this requirement? And that may be enough to kind of get by and, and check the box uh, to Simon's question. Um, but I don't think it's often enough to actually address the root cause of the risk. Um, so I've been kind of playing with this analogy, so I'll try it on you all. Um, but I like to think it's like using a chainsaw that you've actually purchased to cut down a tree with, and then also trying to use it to mow your lawn. Like you can ask the question, right? Does the chainsaw cut grass? Well, technically, yes, it can, but ultimately it's going to be incredibly inefficient. It's going to be incredibly ineffective because that's not what it was designed for. And I think the same is, is true for when people try to throw um, security tooling, existing tooling that's already in their tool belt at an issue. Uh, it may help you check a box in emerging risks that are coming out, but it's it's ultimately going to be ineffective and inefficient. So rather than just checking a box, I think it's really important that first and foremost, organizations set these kind of foundational building blocks, right? The boring stuff, but the very important stuff, develop robust processes, policies, procedures based on the regulations. And to Mark's point, getting to the core reason of why these regulations or requirements are here in the first place and then finding solutions to actually address those uh, requirements that are actually fit for purpose uh, and not like trying to shove a round peg or a square peg through a round hole. And I think that's going to be key to kind of finding success and recognizing probably true return on value for changes that everyone's going to inevitably have to make at the end of the day. Charlie with the analogies. Thanks. Um, Sean, I'll come to you. Thanks. Um, so, I'm not a fan of compliance. Um, I think 
it's uh, maybe a bit of a controversial topic uh, starts, but um, I don't believe compliance does often what it sets out to. Um, I understand the, the need for that, but I've seen far too often that it's it's easy to work around some of the, the, the standards, some of the, the the actions or wording are so vague that <laughs> it's very easy. Um, and that means also we have companies doing security to meet compliance rather than doing security to make the product secure. Um, so I think we need can't change a perception. Compliance is there to make sure you're doing the right things, right? Um, and that's where I think we need to get companies thinking rather than, oh, we've done this, we've got this compliance. The compliance should be, yes, we're doing everything correctly. Um, and to, uh, to Mark's point um, earlier, um, I forgot the point now. <laughs> But I will remember it. Um, but um, yeah, so things like PCI. Uh, oh, that's what it was. Um, so one of the other things I found with uh, PCR is it's slow to adapt. So to Mark's point earlier about like CSP and SRR, he, as he mentioned, those have been out for years now. Um, it's taken this long for compliance to actually catch up. And security is a very fast-moving field. We're talking compliance taking at least maybe, what, two, three years? to catch up to things. Um, and I've seen things in compliance scratching my head going, uh, that doesn't make sense. Like, I could easily work around that. Um, regulations are probably a little bit more different. I think they have a bit more teeth. Um, so I think those are a better avenue. Um, but to kind of finish up, I think one way that we can tackle this is customers really start needing to push their um, suppliers in that and start asking them the tough questions. Because ultimately, the biggest driving factor behind all of this is revenue, customer um, profits and all of that. That is going to be the, the the starting factor in my view. Um, I actually completely agree, Sean. I think that um, as an exercise in itself, security through compliance is always going to be a losing battle because you never ask why, you just check the boxes. And um, despite that, it can still be powerful. So, you know, going back to the point on SRI and CSP, yes, they've been around for, you know, over a decade in some cases. Adoption has still, like, improved, in, in increased by orders of magnitude just since the PCI DSS-4 standard was, was announced, right? Um, which is to say, yes, it's really, really slow, and it's a long way behind the state of the art, but it's also fairly impactful when it gets there. I guess it's like a truck, yeah? I mean, you, you want something uh, faster and more nimble, but when the tre- truck gets there, you're going to know about it, right? And, uh, yeah, so I, I think that um, I completely agree with you that, that they're really blunt tools and they're often really, really badly misused. But if you're able to use them to your advantage to actually improve security, then they're our friends, not our foes, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, although I completely get the frustration sometimes, you know, particularly when you get like a customer questionnaire and they'll they'll say things about um, password complexity, an example from a previous employer, you know, what's your password policy for systems of such and such a type? Well, our policy is not to have passwords because we uh, strongly authenticate using um, multiple factors, including this and that. Yes, but what's your password policy? Our password policy is not to use passwords, but what's your password policy? You know, and you end up in conversations like this. You, you can't secure something by um, checking boxes, especially if you're not asking why the boxes exist. 
at the same time, they're there. They're not going to go away. So let's use them. Amazing. And Simon, I'll come back to you to summarise. I well, I just listen to what everyone said. I mean, I agree with what everyone's been saying. Um, I mean, Mark's quite right. Understanding the you know what's behind the, the these regulations and compliance things is absolutely key. Um, I think Charlie's saying about rethinking and retooling and having an opportunity to do things differently. I think is really important. Um, and Sean's quite right. You know, compliance doesn't help change things, and it's easy to get round. Uh, my point of view is that, that you know, particularly if you're in a big um, an organisation where you actually have a security team, then this is a brilliant opportunity, which I think Mark hinted at as well. You know, it's often really difficult for security to drive change. These things can be an opportunity for security to get in, and say, right, we're driving this, and we're not just going to tick boxes. We're actually going to make something useful and explain to the business why that's happening. So I think security teams should and people should see these things as opportunities to drive re- meaningful change that will help them and help the business. Perfect. I suppose we've discussed responsibility, regulatory impact, and uh, you know some practical solutions. I suppose the final question is why we're all here today. So Mark, I'll uh, come to you. Um, so yeah, we've referenced a couple of uh, recent and upcoming regulatory changes. Uh, the question really for me is around whether there are going to be unintended consequences. Do you think the changes will work as intended? And are you concerned about anything that might go wrong with them? Charlie, I'll start with you. I am actually broadly optimistic about the requirements, but I do agree. I, I do think there will be unintended consequences because Although some of them may be seem simple, I think they're more difficult to achieve than people realize. Uh, for example, one of the trends that we're seeing in a lot of industry publications as well as regulatory qu- requirements, specifically Dora calls this out, but there's stricter requirements simply around SBOM completeness. And that focus really comes down to ensuring SBOMs include both uh, commercial and open source components and dependencies. Now, in my opinion, I think that is 100% the right thing to do, uh, which is why I say I'm optimistic, um, because that requirement for completeness falls in line with almost every GRC or audit methodology that's ever been used professionally. We all know if you want to use an an artifact for audit purposes, you need to be able to demonstrate uh, completeness and accuracy for it. Um, However, I think there is very little education uh, regarding solutions that can truly meet that requirement. Uh, For example, there's a number of of really great SCA software composition analysis tools out there, which are free to use um, and will help you generate an SBOM immediately to check that box. Uh, OWASP dependency track is a, is a, is a great example of one that's free. Um, however, one of the things to be careful about with SCA, especially free open source tools, is that they often provide coverage of only open source components. So they entirely miss the, the ability to identify and report against commercial components, which are, if you're a consumer, an enterprise consumer of software, going back to my previous point, that will undoubtedly be in COTS, right? Because that's what makes it commercial in nature. Um, And beyond that, there are actually a lot of SCA solutions will generate their SBOMs based off uh, what are called developer manifests uh, as their data source. So if maybe the listeners aren't familiar with a a manifest, it's essentially a a list of components and dependencies that are declared to exist in the software package. In other words, what the developer uh, 
kind of knows about. And as a result, the S-bombs that are generating with that types of tools tend to be inaccurate, incomplete, because they're either missing commercial components, which may exist, or they're potentially missing components or dependencies that developers didn't know they were in there because they weren't declared in a manifest. So I think organizations are going to need to ensure that they aren't just once again getting a tool, back to my previous point, to, to generate an X, uh, S-bomb and check the box, because you can very easily do that. Anyone can do that. Um, they need to make sure it's fit for pur purpose, and it gives them a full view of, of what goes into their software, not only commercial and open source, but then what are the actual risks those present to your business? Back to everyone's point before. Like you can check these boxes, you can generate an S-bomb, but if you're not doing anything with it, if you're not translating it to risk into not only security risk, but operational risk to your business, then they're of no value to anyone at the end of the day. Amazing. Sean? Yeah, I entirely agree with Charlie's point about managing the risk. Um, I've seen many just go, oh, just generate an S-bomb. Well, that's great. I can tell what's there, but how's that reducing the risk? Um, and I think also a really important thing is there's some of these tools like Grab and Dependency Check. They're, they're great for generating S-bombs on, on, in little silos, but if you're going to have these all over the place, that's not going to be very useful for you. Like One of the most frustrating things that I found about the Log4j vulnerability was people still running around going, oh my gosh, where are we using Log4j? Well, if we cast our minds back to uh, September 2017, what happened? Equifax got breached by a vulnerability in a library. That should have been the wake-up call for people going, okay, well, we need to know where, what we're using where. Um, and that's to like Charlie's point, where you have to manage these and know where the risk lies. So if you do have like Log4j coming out, you can go, all right, we need to fix it there, there, and there. Or have a, uh, a, other mitigations around it. Okay, well, we need to put extra firewalls or a WAF or, or whatever behind it. Um, I th but having said that, I do think we're moving in the right direction. So if I, if we have a look up back to like even Log4j, um, we're totally different place now. There's so many tools in that now, now I can talk about SBOMs. We've got the regulations coming in, um, best practices, all of that. So a lot of it has changed for the, the positives. However, I think there's one glaring thing that really scares me. It's probably scares me the biggest is not just the vulnerabilities in, in these these libraries and that we know about this, but what about the malicious attackers that are injecting malicious libraries, malicious code, compromising? It's like finding a needle, not even in a haystack, like finding a needle in the ocean. There's just so much out there. How do we detect this? And I think that's going to be a very big challenge in the coming years. We're constantly seeing path and packages node packages with all these malicious um, things in there. So I think from our perspective, that's the next big worry that we're going to have to worry about. Just really quickly to Sean's point, uh, uh, something similar I've experienced and something that keeps me up at night is the attack vector beyond vulnerabilities. I think everyone gets comfortable with vulnerabilities because there are very robust processes and frameworks to manage them. Uh, and we've seen it pop up time and time again. Um, in the history of of kind of supply chain attacks. Um, Salsa that's managed by OpenSSF is a really great framework for managing uh, software supply chain risk. And they have a really helpful threat model that describes all the types of 
um, attack vectors that could impact a um, supply chain from um, development to packaging to the inclusion of dependencies to the delivery of software to an end consumer. And it, it very visually shows that like vulnerabilities are only one attack vector beyond all these other vulnerability types like um, build environment compromise, like uh, uh, tampering version to version, like inputting malware into open source package repositories through typo squatting attacks and various other attack types. So it's a really good resource for anyone that wants to learn more about the attack vectors out there. Um, just to add why I think the attack thing is going to be uh, really dangerous for us. So if you go have a look at the NPM library, there's a, a library called Dash. That's all its name is, Dash. It actually does absolutely nothing. It, it's totally valueless. Um, I don't know what the intent of it was when it was created. Um, NPM have taken over ownership of it, thankfully. But there are currently... 43,375 weekly downloads of this library. It's included as in 277 other libraries. Those are the things that worry me because you'll have this included in the library that then includes this. How do you detect that? Uh, Simon, I'll come back to you to summarize. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no I'm just, I can talk about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I missed on Mark. <laughs> but yeah, Simon, go on. Sure. Um, so I'm naturally cynical. So do I think changes work as intended? No. Am I concerned about unintended consequences? Yes. <laughs> Simple answers. Um, I, I, you know, things are getting more complex. There's no doubt about that. Um, software is, as, as everyone knows, eating the world. There's more and more complexity. Um, and it's the more complexity is the harder it is to secure. And you know, we need more of an investment in time in security. Uh, and that's this kind of investment that isn't happening. I mean, it is to a certain extent, but not enough. You know, as I said, generating all these S-bombs doesn't make a difference if people don't use them intelligently. So um, I'm generally, you know, I'm positive in the way the uh, industry is moving. It's moving too slowly, as always. Um, but yeah, things are going to go horribly wrong. I have no doubt about that. And I'm more concerned about regulation making things much, much worse. So the EU's Cyber Resilience Act, you know, at the moment that's looking really awful. It's, you know, the responsibility on producers, um, including individual developers, um, which is crazy. Um, so there is a real possibility that it could force out the smaller, as I mentioned before, the smaller companies, the open source developers, and um, mean that costs will go up and actually security will go down. And Mark, to summarise? I'm really glad that uh, Simon finished with the point that he did because it was kind of the uh, um, intent behind my question just to flush some of this stuff out. I think that one of the real dangers with the um, CRA in particular is that there's a perverse incentive in reducing people's ability to contribute and that will ultimately make the security of the things that we build worse, not better. Um, it's already the case that something like 96% of products that are built contain open source components, and we're going to be in real trouble if we stop people maintaining those, if we stop people fixing the issues in those, if we stop people uh, keeping up to date with the latest security standards and techniques. And I see Sean has his hand up, so I'll let you jump in. I just want to point out the most ironic thing about this is many of the tools that we use to help uh, this whole problem are open source. 
So those will be directly affected by this, possibly. It's just rather ironic. Yeah, uh, that irony was not lost on me. And um, if anybody's interested in this, actually, there's a, a really nice webinar that was put together by uh, the Drupal Joomla WordPress Open Forum and Typo3 folks. It's on uh, the Drupal Association's YouTube channel, um, and it's on the Cyber Resilience Act. It's worth looking up because it discusses a lot of the um, issues that the open source community as a whole is facing with this. And um, it seems to me you know, somewhat wrongheaded to have something like the CRA that's designed to solve the problem of supply chain security that doesn't take into account the single largest source of software in the software supply chain. Probably over 90% by line of the software you use in commercial or open source products comes from an open source uh, background. So it's really important that they get this right. Perfect. Today, this episode has explored the vital link between software supply chain security and involving regulations. We discussed stakeholder responsibilities, the impact of upcoming regulations on software development, the importance of practical security enhancements and concerns about regulatory effectiveness and unintended consequences. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Charlie, Mark, Sean and Simon for providing the insights into the topic as thought leaders in the industry. I'll let you know where you can find them on social media uh, in the comments on the post on LinkedIn. Uh, please do take some time to listen to Sean's monthly podcast as well. This time around, he touches on the war in Israel and Palestine, the Red Cross rule report for activists in the context of armed conflict, and of course, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. If you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts in the AppSec world, reach out to me on LinkedIn or email at gareth.davis at evolutionjobs.co.uk. See you next time.